Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, uh, especially those uh, here in the gym, but also those listening in the St. Louis area on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. We continue with our study in the Gospel of Luke, and there are handouts over by the Bible stack uh, with verses. I do not think we're going to get all the way through 9 verse 23, but I I went all the way there just in case we manage uh, to get further than I expected. But... There we go. Oh, there we go. Back on. Uh, We pick up uh, right at the conclusion of where our gospel reading for today in in service ended. Uh, And I know Pastor Thomas mentioned it last week. We did not plan this. It just happened to work out with the lectionary cycle that uh, last week you guys studied the gospel text um, for this weekend in our study of Luke. But it's important to keep that in mind because the first line of Luke 8 verse 40 is now when Jesus returned... (laughs) And like when it's, you know, uh, many other moments after this or something where it says, when they had all heard this, if that's where you start, it's a good idea to go back and just remind yourself where had they come from. And so we, if you were in church this morning, you heard this part already, or if you were in Bible study last week, you heard this part, but just as a quick refresher, Jesus takes his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, the Gerasenes, the country of the Gerasenes, the eastern shore of the sea, And there he heals a man that is demon-possessed. Not just demon-possessed, but possessed by many demons. So much so that when Jesus asks the man his name, he says legion. Which, uh, as Pastor Thomas will tell you today in the the sermon, uh, was about 6,000 Roman soldiers made a legion. And so after he had healed this man, the very last thing he tells this man to do is go and proclaim all that God has done. And why I want you to remember that. Because in about 25 to 30 minutes from now, we're going to see Jesus say something very different than go and proclaim what you have seen. And there's a reason for that. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So now when Jesus returned, that is, went back across the sea, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now in this pericope here, there's two stories that are intertwined. And we're going to see this quite quickly. We have Jairus and his daughter, and we find this woman, this woman who's had uh, a a bleeding issue for 12 years that no one can heal. And there's a temptation, I think, at times to look at this as two stories. And while there are certainly two uh, different miracles that happened here, they are intentionally put together. This intentionally happens together. Um, It's like a sandwich. I I, I... thought of this analogy, I thought it was a good one. You know, a sandwich, you've got two very different parts of a sandwich. One, you've got what? Bread. And then you've got whatever you put in the middle. You know, PB&J, turkey, ham, Swiss, etc. Those are very two distinct things. But you can't have the sandwich unless you take a bite of all of them together. And that's kind of what's happening here, is that you're going to have this, this story of Jairus' daughter and, and this event happening there. But then there's also this part in the middle. And I think they work really well together, and it's especially poignant uh, pericope to go over on Father's Day, and uh, you'll see why in just a moment. So a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now what's it mean to be a ruler of a synagogue? Does anyone have a guess what they think that could be referring to, what sort of roles he might have? Yeah, (laughs) Ramah. (laughs) 
Yes, so he was responsible for a lot of that, even sometimes the financial side of things. Um, would even have maybe oversight, potentially, on uh, rabbis. So you kind of have this role that is very uh, intricately connected with the worship life of the congregation, but the person isn't necessarily um, a rabbi. So it's, it's a little bit like, I don't know, church president or something. Uh, Dave, you can... Yeah, something like that, right? Would you say you're a ruler of the... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's, but you can think of it like that. This is a person who has a very important lay position, but would have been thought of very highly amongst the people, and was probably in good standing both financially, socially, um, and certainly would be seen to have been in good standing spiritually. And so this ruler of the synagogue, this prominent member of their community, he humbles himself and falls at Jesus' feet, and he implores him, that is begged, it's parakaleo in Greek, literally to call out to him, come to my house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So a couple of things to note right off the top. First, uh, Jairus is absolutely does this, I, guess, I don't want to say does it right, but you know, he doesn't come from a position of, you ought to do this. No, he humbles himself at Jesus' feet. He falls down before him. He begs him, come, trusting that Jesus, who has been seen to do great things, might be the only and the last hope that his daughter has to live. And on a day like Father's Day, and as someone who is celebrating his first Father's Day, uh, you, you can imagine what sort of things are going through Jairus' head. I mean, just how desperate this situation is. How much urgency would be in this situation. And that's important to remember because of what happens next. So Jesus went. He goes. And the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So here is that middle part of that sandwich that I talked about. And we find someone who is on the complete opposite spectrum of Jairus. Jairus, who's well thought of in his community, probably fairly well off financially, would certainly be considered by those uh, in that community as a, as a righteous sort of person, did things the right way, and most importantly here, was someone who would not be considered unclean. This woman, because of this affliction, had no hope to be considered clean in those days. Could not participate in the life of the synagogue. She could not enter the synagogue. She was in this perpetual state of uncleanliness, and she also was desperate. You notice, what did it say she tried? Whatever she could possibly afford. Everything. Spent all that she had. And in, we don't know her exact station in life, but there's probably a likelihood that she is um, not only childless, but probably also a widow. Again, we don't have that directly stated, but it says all that she had earned, all that she had ever made as a living. She'd spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. And so you have this woman who, like I said, is the foil to Jairus, completely unclean, but also now finding themselves in the same 
sort of position that Jairus is in. Desperate, without hope, seemingly we're nowhere else to go. Uh, and surely Jairus, if his daughter had been sick, also tried pretty much every physician or healing method known to man. And so she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Kind of interesting to note here, that word, that fringe of the garment, it's like a tassel. I mean, just the edge of it. And she came up from behind, meaning, what did she know would not have been proper in those days as someone who had been considered unclean? To approach him. To come through the center of the crowd and say, touch me. She knew that that would not have been, uh, in, would not have been culturally appropriate. Her whole life, or the last 12 years at least, she would have been told just how inappropriate that sort of behavior would be. And so she comes from behind and just touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And now here's one of the funniest lines, I think. And, and it's, uh, why I say it's funny is because of the disciples' reactions. Jesus goes, who touched me? <laughs> now what's Jesus in the midst of at this point? A crowd. Been to a Cardinals game or a Blues game and you're all filing up the escalator or going, you know, you would never stop and say, who touched me? Why? Because there's a hundred people who would have possibly touched you, bumped into you. It would have been totally normal for someone to rub shoulder to shoulder, right? And so he stops and he says, who touched me? When all denied it, all those around him denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds that surround you and are pressing in on you. A.K.A., what a silly question at a time like this. Tons of people are touching you. But what's Jesus' point here? Does he really not know who touched him? Oh, he knows. Does he not know what's been done? No, he absolutely knows what's been done. Is there not great urgency to get to Jairus' house? Well, in the eyes of the crowd, Yes. And so this is a very confusing moment for those who are there because he stops, says this kind of ridiculous question, and then the disciples rebuke him, essentially, say, what are you doing? Get going. And he says, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Yes, he's surrounded by a hundred people, perhaps, or even more, greater numbers than that. Yes, there are people all around him, but there has been someone who has touched me in faith. Something here has happened. And it's good that we stop <laughs> and highlight that. And so the woman saw that she was not hidden. Literally in, in, in the Greek, that she was uh, found out, that she was out in the open, that she was exposed. And so she came trembling falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Like I said, this is two stories here, two different people, two different situations, and yet I think they go so intricately together. What does the woman do before Jesus? Fall down. What had Jairus done when he came before Jesus? Fell down. The, the sheer humility of being in a hopeless situation before Jesus. A situation you know you can't fix. A situation you know cannot uh, resolve itself. 
and there's only one place you can go. And so she told in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, uh, if you were in this class, I believe it was probably, may have been the first one we did, or may have even been last summer. Just before this, um, or he may, let's see, no, it would have been a few weeks ago. Who does Jesus say in, in Luke is his family? Believers, yet remember the crowd goes, your mother and brothers, they can't get to you. And he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, who believe. And so he says to her daughter, now, of all the daughters that one might be thinking of right now, who do you think the crowd's focused in on? Jairus' daughter. And yet Jesus takes a moment, says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Sozo is the, is the word in Greek. And that occurs four times in Luke. That exact phrase. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. The first one we talked about, uh, let's see, three weeks ago, the, the woman of the city, when she comes and anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, with the ointment, tells her to rise, go in peace, your faith has saved you. This is the second instance in the Gospel of Luke that you have this exact construction. Then, if you fast forward all the way, and you can turn your Bibles all the way to Luke 17, verse 19. Another very famous incident of healing. Jesus with the ten lepers. And you uh, read that Jesus answered the one who returned, giving him thanks. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And then you don't have to go too much further, just into chapter 18, into 18 verse uh, 42, with the blind beggar. And he says, what would you have me do to you? And he says, well, restore my sight. And Jesus does just that, and then says, uh, says to him, your faith has made you well. Why I highlight those four examples is this is a constant theme, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel, even throughout the epistles, right? What restores us? Faith. Who brings that healing to us? God. Is that healing because we've deserved it? Is that healing because we're so accepted in society? Every single one of those instances, whether it's this woman with the bleed, who's been bleeding for 12 years, whether it's this woman of the city, aka a prostitute, whether it's a leper, whether it's a blind man begging, they of their own volition have no hope to restore themselves. They have no hope to be able to pull themselves out of their predicament. 
And you stop and think about that for a moment, um, and you're going to see this with Jairus' daughter. And I think this is why it's so cool that this um, pericope, the, the way this happens, the way that God worked that day near the Sea of Galilee, because if he would have just gone to Jairus' house and healed his daughter, what might people have thought of? Well, of course he did that. Jairus is such an upstanding member of the synagogue that this is who God works for. This is how you know God works for you, is if you're, you're good and, and perfect and right in the eyes of the world and of, of people, that's who God chooses. And yet, of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. And so you have this incident in the middle with this woman, and then also the result of that, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but because he took this time out, what happens to Jairus' daughter? By the time Jesus gets there, in the eyes of the world, it's too late. She's dead. Um, and yet, that gives credence for Jesus to do an even uh, more amazing and incredible miracle. So, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You are not only healed, but in familial relationship with God. And yet, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble this teacher anymore. There are several moments like this in the Gospels. One of them is the shepherds. I would have loved to see the shepherd's face when the angel appeared to them. You know, moments where you wish you had a snapshot. We had a Polaroid picture of what that person's reaction was. And this would have been a very different reaction. Um, because here's Jairus, and, and this is his last hope. You know, he's still clinging to that last bit of hope that, that maybe Jesus can do what no one else can. Maybe God can do for me what no one else can seemingly do. And yet, what words does he hear? Not only does he see Jesus do this miracle, stop, take this time out in this time of great urgency, but now because he's taken that time and stopped, what has happened? His daughter's died. And I would have, it would have been, I think, very interesting to see what Jairus' face, how he responded to that. Because at some point, I'm sure, very quickly, a bunch of emotions flash through his head. Probably anger. <laughs> he was our last hope, and he stopped along the way to help this woman who's unclean. Perhaps great sadness, I mean grief. His only daughter, his only child, 12 years old, full of life, now dead. You can imagine the fear, even. And so you have this moment where Jairus thinks all his hope, every last bit of hope he had is now gone. This situation goes for one of barely any hope, but there's just a little bit to hold on to, to total despair. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. <laughs> Who do you think that him is? 
Okay, the man. That's one possibility. It's a little bit ambiguous, and I think it's purposely so. Notice what words are said right after that. Answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Who does that sound like it's addressed to? Jairus. And so there is a little bit of ambiguity there. And I think probably the proper answer is yes and, right? Jesus knows exactly what has just gone through Jairus' mind. The absolute terror that his only child, his daughter, is dead. Uh, And and as one who is now a father, I can say this kind of hits in a different way when you start reading it, when you think of your own child, right? And and all of a sudden you start to see um, just how in that moment broken Jairus must have felt like everything was in his world. And Jesus' words to him, like so many times in the Gospels, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. One thing that's interesting uh, in Greek is that that verb be and the noun faith, it's really the same word. And they mean the same things in English, but we have two different words for them. Um, But it's have faith. Do not fear, have faith, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now this is one instance where uh, the disciples are not all allowed in. What's another instance where just Peter, John, and James get to go up with Jesus? Transfiguration. Yeah, that was immediately kind of what I thought of when you, when you read that, that it was just Peter, John's, John, and James that went up with Jesus. Um, and of course, what happens at, on the transfiguration? They see the, the glory of God. What are they going to see in that room? The majestic power and glory of God. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Uh, it's interesting, when do you, when's the next time we read of weeping and mourning, at least in the Gospel of Luke? Anyone have a guess? What? Crucifixion. Luke 23. That as Jesus is on that road to Calvary, and, and uh, women are weeping and mourning for him. And he said to her, do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And this really highlights one of the most interesting things, not only uh, in Luke, but in how Jesus, the Gospels, and again, even the Epistles talk about death. What is Christian death? Your sleep. Paul talks about this. Elsewhere, even in the Gospels, Jesus talks about this. Uh, Very famously, if you want to turn to John chapter 11... turn to John 11. And you look at the story of Lazarus. And what does he say to her?
Yes. He is sleeping. Hmm? Yeah. He is sleeping. Think about Christian death and the reality of what it means that we have uh, not only the great gift of Christ's eternal life, but how we have a different perspective from the world. What does the world look at death as? The end. The finality of it all. How does Jesus treat Christian death? Sleep. And I think that's one of the, the coolest things that we, we should do a lot better job probably in focusing on that. Um, probably even more often. Because that is exactly, just as it was for Jairus' daughter, just as it was for Lazarus, exactly what it is also for us. Uh, even Paul in First Thessalonians talks about, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. So that you don't grieve as the others do without hope. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then I love this. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. <laughs> yeah. Make sure she gets breakfast. <laughs> um, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now this is one of the most, I think, interesting parallels, the, the ch Luke chapter 8, and what has happened over on the other side of the sea versus what has happened on the west side of the sea. On the east side, the man that uh, was demon-possessed, what is the instruction he has given? Go and tell. The parents, Jairus, the man on the western side, is told what? Don't say a word. <laughs> well, that, I, who knows how successful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, how are you going to explain that to all those weeping outside then? I'm not supposed to say anything. <laughs> um, but can anyone just think, why, why might Jesus give such different instruction to two uh, both equally, quite frankly, amazing miracles, and yet two different instructions on how one is to go uh, forth afterwards. Well, location has something to do with it. Hmm? Yes, Gentiles, when miracles happen in, uh, in Gentile country, Guess what the instruction is? Tell them all. <laughs> Tell them what God has done for you. And uh, it's great in verse 39. What does it say? The man went and said what Jesus did. There's a very direct uh, example of Jesus being God. But when you get to, and I saw the hand go up, so I'll get there in a second. Uh, when you are in Jewish territory, why would he give the instruction to say nothing? Yeah. 
Correct. So the, the comment was made that they would want to seize him too soon. His hour had not yet come. Or, yeah, or they try, would try and prop him up as an earthly king. But you look at how Jesus talks about, uh, even to the disciples, right? Don't say anything because my hour has not yet come. <laughs> and then when you get to the upper room, what has finally come? The hour. What uh, God's plan of salvation fully entailed. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that you have for the same reason one group of people being instructed to go and tell everyone so that they may know and hear about what God is doing and another group being told say nothing until the hour has come. Um, and like, like you brought up, who knows how silent they actually were. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is kind of an interesting that in back-to-back miracles, back to, I mean, it, within a few, maybe even a day after the one, He gives them a completely different instruction. Um, But so we stop, and we get to the end of this pericope, and you think about what has just occurred, and what the people have just witnessed, uh, because they certainly would have at least heard that she was dead, and whether or not they were told by Jairus exactly, or that it was a miraculous healing, again, we don't know. But you think about how Jesus approaches these two situations. One that the world would probably say makes a lot of sense for Jesus to get involved in. Another, that it seems not nearly as important or as, um, I don't know what the right word is, it's not as weighty. You know, this is someone who's unclean, not well off, not in the community, not in the worship life of the synagogue because of her condition, unclean. And yet, how does Jesus treat them both? The same. What is the instruction, or I said, what is the cause that both would be healed? Their faith. And I think you actually have here an amazing testimony of faith, not only in the woman, but in Jairus himself. Because uh, that he heard what Jesus told him. Do not fear, only believe, and trusted that Jesus would take care of it. And then you think about our own standing as we come before God, and which, which side of the coin do we fit in? Well, they're really two sides of the same coin, right? Both hopeless situations, both instances where there is only one possible solution, only one possible thing that can make them well, only one possible hope for them in their life. And it falls directly on the same person. And I think that's what's so beautiful about this, is you have two things that the world would say look like very different um, sort of miracles, and yet they're really the same thing. God coming and restoring and healing in ways that only God can do. Fixing things that needed to be fixed that only he can fix. Um, and of course, when we think about our own life, that's exactly what he does for us as well. So uh, I know there was a question earlier. I saw a hand up and I ignored it. Oh, sorry, Dr. Bender. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so the point, just for those listening on the radio, is being made that in those days, um, there was a lot of, I guess you'd call it um, superstition or sort of this understanding, and, and part of the, the benefit of saying, <laughs> give her something to eat, is to, to show that this isn't some sort of appearance, this isn't a ghost, this isn't a phantom of, or anything of that sort. No, this is that same little girl that you saw die uh, is raised in the body. And, uh, of course, what does... You, like you mentioned, Dr. Barron, what does Jesus ask for in the upper room? <laughs> Do you have something to eat? Apparently dying makes you hungry. Maybe that's the first thing. That <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly how he proved that he was real, that this wasn't a, a ghost or an appearance or a, a phantom of some sort. Um, and then even in, in John, what's he doing while they're all fishing after the resurrection? Cooking, yeah. So... So maybe there'll be lots of food in heaven. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, definitely Lutheran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Potluck. It was potluck time. Um, all right. Question. Yes. Yes. So the very good. That's a very good comment. How, how do you approach people, or how would you approach it if you heard this passage or this this pericope as a whole taken um, as well? Apparently, if you have enough faith, you will be healed. Uh, and of course, the reality is, uh, we all die. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not surprising anybody. Um, yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, but how would you how would you approach it if someone were to say, "Well, if you just have more faith, you know, your cancer or your disease or your ailment or whatever is wrong will be healed"? Um, I'd say there's kind of two sides to this. One, does our faith heal us com- completely? Restore us completely. Yes. And what is meant by that, of course, is in our eternal life. Um, that we are completely healed of the affliction of sin, death, the devil. And so there is an aspect where, yes, our faith heals us. And I shouldn't say our faith heals us. Our faith bestows on us that which Christ died to give to us. It reconciles us back to God, restores us, gives us the gift of eternal life. But when you deal with the world, people can twist that very quickly and say, well, why is this person healed but not this person? And of course, even Jairus probably thought this very thing. Wait a minute, I believe just like that woman did. Why didn't you hurry? You could have come back to her. There was no urgency there. I mean, she would have still had the problem 15 minutes from now. And what is... Um, probably the hardest petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, We pray that people would, when they get sick, be healed according to God's will, knowing that their eternal healing, their eternal restoration, is theirs definitively, definitely in Christ. Why, when we have a funeral service, I love that the the heading on the the funeral bulletin is a celebration of the entry into the church triumphant. And in that, there is healing. Um, 
but on earth, even this little girl grew up, got old. Lazarus, Lazarus, died. Yeah. Um, this little girl died. And, and death is a direct result of sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Where's the focus of that, that trust or that faith? Where's the focus of it? Um, and very quickly, so the comment was made, I'll try and summarize real quick, that a lot of times when people say stuff like that, they're putting their trust and their hope in, them, in themselves or in their uh, belief that they can be healed rather than centering it wholly and completely on Christ. Um, and, and you see this throughout, uh, throughout the gospel, even the centurion, right? Say the word, and I trust, I believe, that you have the power to heal. Um, but it, it is one of those things where does the will of God in an in instance like this, where someone's, let's just say someone is sick, and, and maybe even a child, right? One of the most difficult things is the reality that even children get sick and even die. And you have someone who is using this verse... Um, you want to be very careful that you point them to the fact that it is not um, our will be done, it is thy will be done. And we don't always, God's will is perfect and is pleasing, but it doesn't always look that way to the world. Just like for Jairus in that moment. You know, you think about, I, again, I go back to, I wish I had a, a snapshot of his face because who knows what sort of tears started pouring down his cheeks, right? Did he cry out in agony? Did he get angry? Did his face just drop? And, and, and of course, um, the wonderful miracle of Christ is that in him we all are restored. We are all healed in faith and given the gift of eternal life. The resurrection of our body. All right, was it, yes, Carolyn? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Or is God getting me back now for something that happened that I did ten years ago or yeah, so the... No, you're, you're absolutely right. So the, the comment was made, again, I'll summarize for the radio, um, that in culture, when we talk about redemption, so much of it centers on being a good person. So much of it centers on, you know, if you've done enough, then you'll kind of, it's, without a better phrase for it, it's kind of a, a, a Western idea of karma. Right? That so much of our culture operates, even if they don't communicate it, they operate this way, that kind of what goes around comes around. So if you've done good enough here, you're going to be blessed here. Or if something bad happens, and, you, and that's how our culture, and I want to be clear, that's what I'm saying, that's how our culture operates. That's not what we confess to believe. Um, and I think that's why it's so neat. And it's, I mean, obviously this is God, so it is perfect, but it is so cool. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. It's so cool that 
uh, Jesus heals these two individuals in this manner. Now, I talked at the start about it. It's like a sandwich. You can't remove a part of the sandwich and keep it as a sandwich. You know, the middle is just as important as the bread. And, and that is so easy for us to forget that this woman, the woman with the bleed, the world would have said she had absolutely no right to be near Jesus. And even in those days, what was the reaction of those who were born with, with crippling disease? What, is the, what was the reaction of the world? What, yeah, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? Right? And what does Jesus do? He approaches all of us, the least to the greatest. Um, and it's because we are all, before God, the same. Well, and that, that is why, I mean, I, I feel like this is, we, we talk about this so often, right? But that thy will be done is so difficult. It is truly, uh, to honestly pray that means you have to humble yourself quite a bit. You have to be able to say, God, I don't control the outcome here. And I trust that you have it under control. And that you are God. And I'm not. Uh, and again, you think about this from Jairus' perspective. This would have been, I mean, what a... He probably took a really good uh, rest that night. I'll just say. What an exhausting range of emotions to go from. But the heartbreak, let's not, you know, we read it and we know kind of the ending. You guys knew the ending before we even got there, right? But Jairus didn't. All he heard is, my daughter's dying. I have nowhere else to go. And then before I even got back, she's dead. And, and it's, it's really kind of humbling to think about uh, what... What position did he have to put himself in before Jesus? A completely humble, I mean, basically a broken position. I'm, this, my life is broken right now. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that uh, where is the gospel the sweetest? Is when we realize just how much God has given to us without us doing a thing to deserve it. Right? And, and it's, it's uh, one of the most difficult realities we go through is the lack of control. I mean, I think we fool ourselves into thinking we have great control because uh, it makes us feel better. You can sleep a lot easier. Well, the world thinks you can sleep a lot easier if you can control everything. I think it's actually the opposite. But you think about what um, those people witnessed that day here in Luke 8, and then how that relates back to us. And everyone has a different um, background, a different experience. And yet, before God, we all come to him broken and needing the same exact thing, being in hopeless despair and yet being given great hope in Christ. Um, so it, it really is one of the most beautiful, I think, pericopes and, and miracles, uh, and one that we should not... It, I, apparently, this, you see, I'm, I'm young, but apparently way back when, there was at one point the lectionary uh, actually eliminated the woman from this. You just read the part about Jairus. 
Um, and I think that would be a great shame to ever look at this and just think of it as the story of Jairus' daughter and not see it as the story of both Jairus' not a story, but the miracle, the reality of uh, both Jairus' daughter, Jairus as a father, and this woman. At the end of this day, what do those two families walk away with? Restoration. Complete restoration, complete reconciliation, uh, complete healing on account of Christ. Two people from the most opposite ends of the spectrum that you can imagine. Um, and yet, it's a great reminder that, one, who's important before God? All. But two, um, what hope do we have if it's not in Christ? And it's none. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, we don't, though. So we don't have that. It, it, I, yeah. Yeah, so the comment was made, it's too bad we don't, <laughs> the girl doesn't give us a, <laughs> a depiction of what her experience was like. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we just simply are not given one, I think, quite intentionally. Yes. All right, we're just going to assume we're not going to get to the 12 apostles getting sent out. No, 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 please, go for it. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the point was made, and uh, so we don't have total radio silence for the. <laughs> um, the point was made, are there two types of faith when we're talking about faith? Because often we can talk about the Christian faith as in, you know, a, um, a, and then versus these instructions here to only believe or your faith has healed you. Um, I would not say, I would say, what, we what do we talk about when we talk about the faith? I think that's actually probably something we should reflect on more. What are we saying when we say the faith? Belief in Jesus as our only hope, Lord and Savior. Uh, as Peter will say in just a few verses, the Christ of God. What is the belief that Jairus is instructed to have, or what is the belief that the woman has coming to Jesus? I would say it's in Jesus being the Christ. That God has the power to do this, that only God can do this. And I would even acknowledge they may not have totally put it all together yet as far as, um, you know, what is happening, but they knew God was at work and they trusted and believed that he would bring um, to them in their faith this healing. Now, even in the Old Testament, I'll get to the question again. Uh, even in the Old Testament, we, we see this time and time again. How did they live in the Old Testament, in the promises of God. 
in faith. Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Um, That faith was still in the Christ, the Son of God, as we just heard last week in the Gospel lesson from John 8. You know, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So I would say there's not, there's certainly not two-face, but how we use it, I think this is a little bit of a product of our English, English language, that we, we do use it both as a noun and a verb. Um, and now I'm probably going to say something wrong, because grammar is not my thing, as you know, Dr. Bender. But the noun really um, speaks to what we live in. And the verb also speaks to what we live in. And so that's where I'd say they, they really work. I don't know. I'm going to say no, they're not two types of faith. There. Answer the question. And not just, I could have just quoted Ephesians and said, Paul says there's one faith, so no. But, uh, yes, question? Well, she's in the Jewish country. She's on the other side. He crosses back over the lake. No, no, so he, he was returned. I, uh, yes, to the man healed of the demons. Yeah. Yes. Well, he is a teacher. I mean, that's why he has disciples. I, I would say, so I, w- I would say Jairus displays that. The person in his house... So if you look at verse, all right, we'll turn, let's turn to verse, let's see, 50, 53. Um, and all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, one, they, is that the disciples included with that? Maybe. But I, I think we, we don't, we want to be too, we want to be careful not to, Displace this from the reality of human emotion. If you've seen someone, they're dead, and someone says to you, they're not dead, they're only sleeping. I, I, I don't take that as they're going, ha ha, he's silly. I think it is more of a, are you serious? I mean, I, think about just the range of human emotions as we... I would say it would... I, I think Jairus believes, I would say all those who are with them, it may, I mean, all right, let's just put it this way. How believable, how easy would it be for us to believe this if we went to Schrader or Bope for someone that we loved and they had a visitation and, and someone said, don't worry, they're not dead. It's a normal human reaction. And that's what I think, you know, it's kind of more of a, you can't be serious sort of thing, then in uh, that, okay, you could say, is there disbelief or is there simply just the gambit of human emotion that says, I'm seeing something that you can't tell me that's not what I'm witnessing. This is my daughter. She's dead. Um, it is, but also it is the natural human reaction We'll come back to that. Let's, 
KFO is going to love this. Yeah. Yes. For 12 years. <laughs> and there's 12 baskets of fish and loaves left over in a few chapters. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, we can. <laughs> it's, we've got four minutes left. So the question was brought up, what significance is there for 12 in the Bible? And there certainly is. 12 tribes um, of Israel, the 12 disciples. Uh, but here in this instance, I think the closer connection, and again, um, whether or not she had, it does say she had a discharge for 12 years, and the girl is 12 years old. But the miracle is the same even if she had had the discharge for eight years. I think you want to be careful not to, every time the number 12 appears, to say, well, now we bring in this whole gambit. But also not minimize the reality that um, I think perhaps the neat part is um, the restoration is brought to people who had, in some ways, maybe been experiencing this problem. I guess I shouldn't say this problem because the girl wasn't experiencing something that was very difficult for them to experience for the last 12 years. And we don't know how long the girl was sick. If it was quick, if this has been a long time thing. Um, but I think there is probably some significance or some comparative similarities to the fact that it's a 12 year old girl and the woman's had this issue for 12 years. But I would be careful not to just go instantly to, and this connects it back to the whole 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. And because after all, only three of the disciples get to go in. So, you know, you have, that's where you got to be a little careful with that. But as far as just the number 12, I mean, that was the number of children. So that's why they each got a tribe. And, and certainly there is some connection there um, when you talk about the disciples to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but as far as this girl and the woman, I would say probably a anecdotal sort of thing at best. All right. We're about at time. The clock is saying 10.29. Are there any last questions? All right. Well, we can tell Pastor Thomas we got sidetracked a little bit today. But uh, we will pick up with Chapter 9 next week with the apostles getting sent out. Um, and then also with the, the loaves of fish and some pretty cool uh, things there as well. One of the probably most well-known miracles. Uh, but let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow us uh, to display the same faith that that woman that Jairus had, that we would throughout our lives uh, not fear but trust in not only your promises for us in this earthly life, but your promises for us in an eternal life. I pray that you would keep us in that faith, the one true faith, and that through all things we give glory and honor to your holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Amen.